Thank you for tuning in. Most of us have been seeing and even feeling a heightened and increasing sense of strain and distress in the workplace and in life overall. It's been this way for a while, and it's not going away anytime soon. In fact, the experts are predicting it will not peak until 2024, and that just about everybody will be affected. What I'm talking about is the shadow pandemic. The term being used to describe the very real mental health cost and consequence of our individual and collective trauma experienced directly or indirectly as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Alongside all of the other destabilizing political, social, economic, and work-related stressors being faced. And as our guest, Deb Nub, managing partner of GrowthPlay explains, this already declared health crisis and emergency needs to be seen right now as a wildfire or tsunami we can already hear the alarm bells for and see the effects of, should we choose to look and listen. The solution starts with us as leaders getting very clear very quickly about what's happening and what's coming, and then acting with the necessary sense of urgency to effectively and strategically position ourselves and our teams for what success will demand, which is highly emotionally intelligent, psychologically safe, and connected human-centered work cultures, and for which there is no downside. These, however, don't happen by accident or by default. They only happen by design, along with a lot of developed skills and extended grace. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Deb Nupp, Managing Partner of Growth Play, and we'll be talking about mental health and wellness in the workplace, but through the lens of what's being called the shadow pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Deb. It, it is so great to be with you. And thank you for shining a spotlight on this critical season of consideration around mental health and, well, and well-being. So thrilled to be here. Well, this is an important topic and I'm so thrilled you're here to talk about this. And it is great to see you again. Indeed, you too. So. Um, well, there is so much I want to be able to talk about regarding this subject because so many of the leaders in the firms that I work with and almost everybody else I interact with is feeling that something is off. And, you know, there, there's, there's a mood, there's a stress, you know, even like tension, irritability, frustration, and negativity but at the same time, a sense of hurt and anxiety, and it's all at or below the surface. And seemingly with any new stress or conflict, there's just heightened reactions being felt and experienced 
both inside and outside of work. And so you know, I'm wondering, you know, how much of this can be explained or um, more importantly, better understood in the context of what's being called the shadow pandemic. So that's kind of where we're at. And I'm having those conversations daily, but weekly with so many people that I'm interacting with. But before we dive into that, just for context and background, can you share a little bit about you, career, your career growth play and your role as a managing partner in growth? Yeah. Well, first of all, yes. And, and I, again, I, I really am so happy we're getting to have this conversation because as you speak about the, you know, that this is coming up with an increased frequency, you know, I often think what we're uh, facing is really more like a tsunami, uh, where if you take the Doppler radar and you sort of examine where it lives, you know, it, I, I think that's going to be the context. And so from that context, I'm delighted to say hello to um, everyone who's listening. Um, I'm Deb Nupp. I've had the great privilege uh, since 2001, uh, making my living teaching professional services practitioners um, how to be more lovable relative to marketing, business development, and leadership development effectiveness. Um, prior to starting my consulting firm in 01, uh, I spent a good decade uh, operating in more traditional corporate environments. I spent half my career in human resources and organizational development roles, and the other half in sales and commercial roles. Now, most people would say, if you look at a talent map, normally HR and sales don't necessarily naturally inter, uh, interchange. Um, but the through line, which has been true both in my professional corporate career and subsequently for the last 20 plus years, is that the thing that was the binding agent in my corporate roles and it certainly plays out now in the great work that we get to do at Growth Play is the construct of, of the human experience as it relates to driving loyalty and creating conditions um, that are rooted in authentic relationship building and um, having uh, building corporate cultures and building organizational cultures and now professional service firm cultures um, in a space that are very generative and other centered and um, oriented to elevating uh, the, the overall experience. So um, I did that professionally in my career. And so uh, the great news is that many of the drivers that create uh, employee loyalty also drive uh, client loyalty. And so from that, um, the firm Growth Play, actually the legacy firm, Akina was born in 01. Uh, in 14, uh, Akina became a part of a larger uh, sales effectiveness firm known as Growth Play. And in the last year and a half, we have been um, operating um, principally in professional services, uh, focusing our attention on client experience, uh, the revenue experience and talent experience. So um, that's essentially the lens that we come in. And I am uh, both the founder of the legacy firm and I have the privilege of owning this business with uh, five amazing women um, as fellow managing directors. Well, thank you for that. And, and that's, we, we first met a little bit in that context back in, I think it was 2018 or 19 at yeah. a, a CX conference. And so I'm very thankful that we were able to cross paths at that point. And your through line is perfect for this discussion and really kind of the new era of, of, of business, which has really kind of gone for a while, but now it's being recognized. Um, can we start, can we can we define, can you define for us the, what the shadow pandemic is and, and really kind of what it is, wh why it's become a thing and why you think it's important to talk about? 
Yeah, for sure. So if you if you look at it as a, a general placeholder, a term of art that uh, many mental health experts coined the phrase relatively early during the pandemic. So in the year 2020, uh, people who um, examine sort of what occurs in community, uh, institutional, collective trauma, uh, there began to be a lot of concern about what would occur and how unpredictable um, the long-term impact uh, that COVID would have based on this collective experience of human beings being isolated, um, lonely, um, anxious uh, around mortality, uh, experiencing grief and trauma of real um, you know, mor morbidity, morbidity and, and other um, health and loss. I mean, there were so many um, both low-grade traumas and high-grade traumas that were happening, and every person was essentially, you know, less than the Kevin Bacon game. And we were all, you know, one degree of separation from somebody who was experiencing something, if we're not experiencing for ourselves, um, these meaningful traumas that had all of these echo effects um, early in the pandemic. Um, I think many experts uh, perceived at the time when they spoke of the shadow pandemic, it was largely used as a term to say what is going to happen when, quote, the world returns to normal. And the shadow of the pandemic was suggested that there was going to be some residual consequence uh, for this, this sense of just everyone kind of at this heightened st state of trauma. Well, needless to say, the shadow pandemic now has taken on an entirely more um, alarming uh, definition in large part because of the extended period of trauma that people have experienced through, you know, more than two years of being upended and having a real health threat, um, you know, where people have felt their lives were at threat, their uh, stability and security. If you think about it through the lens of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there was no human being that wasn't threatened or had someone close to them with basics, food, clothing, shelter. I mean, if you just think about the scarcity and it didn't matter how affluent you were, you know, to, to get food and to get at the time toilet paper and other kind of basic life necessities to have those things threatened were, you know, again, unprecedented at all levels of socioeconomics. Um, you then raise that up to that, that sense of connection, you know, so if we go food, clothing and shelter as basic safety needs, then you raise to that level of, you know, the sort of the psychological or, or needs to feel like you're connected where you have security in your finances and in your job. Again, all of these things are threatened. And so the shadow pandemic is now often referred to as the absolute mental health cost and consequence that extends well beyond what occurs during the pandemic. And experts are suggesting that more lives will be lost as an outgrowth of COVID based on mental health, anxiety, depression, addiction, and suicidality, that more lives will be lost in response to COVID than actual lives were lost to the disease itself. Experts also had predicted that the shadow pandemic was not going to peak until 2024. And so when I spoke earlier of this idea of a tsunami, you can imagine that as we sit here today in 2022, recognizing that the worst of this consequence is actually not going to peak based on assumptions until 2024. So when you begin to look at what is the impact 
of recognizing this prediction of loss of life, or at least loss of quality of life, loss of stability. Um, I often ask my clients, you know, on a scale from one to 10, how prepared are you right now in 2022 that you're going to be ready to navigate this cost and consequence of the shadow pandemic on a scale from one to 10? And the universal response I get, Pete, Pete is not a number. The first thing that I get is what's the shadow pandemic? Mm -hmm. And so it's the kind of thing that is not currently making its way into a strategic roadmap. It's not, um, it's not a top three priority um, as organizations think about supply chain. Um, it's not hitting um, the level of culture and care and creating capacities to navigate. It's just not making it. And, and I think we're, we're up it's, it's a real danger uh, for stability and particularly in professional services when the human being is the product. You know, when your revenue source is predicated on stability and well-being of the human beings that execute the work. And so for me in particular has come acutely into um, a focus and, um, and to, to be clear, uh, when I say it's intended to peak in 2024, if you look at um, some of the more daunting statistics through the American Pediatric Association, um, there's a lot being uh, bantered about now that we are in the midst of, and I'm quoting um, the APA and other institutions, we are in a health crisis. We are in an emergency state in adolescent mental health and pediatric mental health. An emergency state is how it's being coined. And yet, when we examine the cost and consequence of this relative to what does that do to the parents of these adolescents or the grandparents of these adolescents, once again, I'm not seeing this urgency of acknowledgement that we have a health crisis. And everyone that works in our, our firms, everyone that works in my firm is one degree of separation from a human being that's a part of this emergency health crisis. And yet it, it's not making its way to the forefront and the stability and the concerns that this will have long-term, I don't think we can begin to measure. Right. Well, and just to kind of maybe add to the context too, I mean, <clears throat> a lot of this, as far as there was a building mental um, health crisis uh, and awareness before the pandemic or, or need for awareness. And so a lot of these things, like a lot that of COVID, with it, it magnified and accelerated things forward. So they, it's not like there wasn't a base yeah. of people really um, working with and trying to understand and develop their baseline and understanding and, and having an awareness to talk about either mental health and wellness and fitness and all that stuff. Yeah. And then on top of it, and then, you know, everything you have just shared about it, it is sometimes on top of, in particularly in professional services, and I know you do a lot of work across professional services, but in the law industry, and, and most of my work in professional services is, is focused on engineering and architecture. It, it's, a, it's a high stress environment on top of that. And there's a lot of overwhelm and burnout that's being felt, faced, felt and faced before COVID and during COVID. And there's a lot, you know, we talk about the great resignation and the great yeah. retirement and the great reshuffling. There was, it's all kind of predicated on a great reset that happened for a lot of people in society who weren't mm -hmm. affected directly by trauma, or maybe it was part of what they were affected by. But there's a lot of leaders who have been holding it all together that haven't even gone through that great reset yet, that they're on mm -hmm. fumes and they're responding to supply chain. And so they haven't even got to this point yet. So it's just, there's just so many factors in play. You, you mentioned some of the statistics um, and that there's a, there's a crisis happening going on. I mean, I, I 
at the beginning shared, this is how I'm seeing things sort of bubble and, and manifest in society. I mean, how, how are you seeing this manifest itself today in the workplace? I think let's start with the great resignation. I think when you examine, when you really dig into why people are leaving their work, um, uh, there's some great research with uh, my good friend and soon to be your good friend, Jen Marr. Um, Jen's research suggests that when you dig below the surface and look at the real data of why people are leaving jobs, it's not because they are you know, leaving for more money or it's not because they have you know, the comfort of enough money that they can take a lot of time off. It's actually they're leaving because they do not feel seen. They do not feel valued and they do not feel heard in the function and role. And that is across all levels. So this is not an exempt versus non-exempt. This is not a partner versus associate type thing. This is across the entire spectrum of positions. And so when a human being does not feel seen heard and valued, um, that takes a tremendous toll on, um, on the psyche, on that sense of stability and well-being, and by sheer survival instinct that we will go into, um, you know, fight, fight or flight um, or freeze. And I think when we start to understand, like, um, these are, these are not psychological, these are psychological terms and, and these are not phenomenons that are unknown. I mean, this is how our human brains work. Um, there's plenty, as you said, leading up to pre-pandemic, there's a lot of growing and a groundswell of understanding and awareness. The biggest challenge is, is I just don't think people know what to do. So how do I, how do I make people feel seen? How do I make people feel valued? How do I make people feel heard? Well, notwithstanding well you know well intentions you throw money at it you throw you know time off at it you throw flexible work hours at it and while those could be factors of the solution i think right now what i'm acknowledging is that we're not looking at it from a systems perspective and we're not looking at it from a culture or a leadership perspective and the very people you're describing the leaders that have been absolutely holding it all together um, it's a little bit like every time I go on vacation, I manage to get some kind of virus. I think when you're on a hike, when you've got adrenaline running um, over a prolonged period of time, and then you sort of take a breath, that's when all the, you know, the germs and the cooties kick in. Um, I think that we're going to see this, this sense of reset, yet we, we're operating from a deficit, and yet we're not, we don't have a language for it. Uh, we don't know how to acknowledge it. And a lot of the solutions that are being offered again well-intended and generous actually can further perpetuate isolation and aloneness it's like we'll give you the time off we're going to give you access to mental health care and self-care and meditation and, and flex time and all these things but once again we're not yet addressing it um, at the at the root of community and social mm -hmm. connectedness experts it, will say people don't get better by themselves it requires relationship and community Right, and, and all that transactional um, response yeah. adds to weighted expectations. Like there's already expectations that you know high achievers and we'll put on professional service, we'll put on ourselves. And now if there's a bump in salary, if there's more time off, if there's more benefit, well, it just adds to the pressure and the stress yeah. in a lot of ways versus like, let's figure out ways to do this. And you know, it's interesting that what we, the research you cited with Jen 
that's very much in line with research six months ago with the McKinsey group that had a report that said, you know, th there's transactional reasons why employees are leaving as part of the great resignation, but there's also the, the relational parts about being valued by the firm, by the manager, and then a sense of belonging. And we just completed a study, AEC focused industry study, and, you know, two three quarters of the people work is affecting my mental uh, wellness. And also that the relationships were key aspects of that. And number one reason for people leaving was better work-life balance. Like that's what they were looking for. And, and money plays a role, yes, but, but, but again, it could have other consequences down the road when you throw money at things, not from an organizational perspective, but from an employee perspective. How, I mean, there's scales, right? So there's so much going on. And obviously with, with different people, with, with, with mental health and wellness in general, there's always... Um, a, a spectrum. Yeah. And we can feel something, but that doesn't mean we have something diagnosable. But even when something is diagnosable, it could only be for a season, right? We, there's with treatment and, and time and the right perspectives. I mean, we could get over that, not get over it, but kind of work through it and then return to another place on the spectrum. How, how should we approach? There was trauma that is out there, I think that's indisputable. And depending on whether we're directly affected or if it's one or six degrees of separation, how do we think about, or how should we approach people on the spectrum, knowing that there could be you know, low grade and there, there could be high grade acute? How, yeah. do you, how should we think about that in a leadership position? Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll start with the arc or the, the overlay of psychological safety. And psychological safety is um, it's a it's a leadership capacity to hold space where people can bring their whole selves, their most authentic selves, in a space where they can again feel seen, feel heard, feel valued, and feel a sense of connectedness that they are not alone, and that there is a sense that the workplace provides part of the refuge, part of the um, the healing. It's, it's a part of the, the space where you can be uh, replenished and restored. And so when you look at that umbrella, I guess I would ask, you know, any leader I work with, you know, how, how are you intentionally putting psychological safety at the, at the cornerstone of your employee or talent experience in a way that you can, you can look at things from a very meaningful and measurable kind of way. Secondly, I think underneath that umbrella, I think we've got to create an understanding around language for what is the difference between feeling depressed and being diagnosed with depression or feeling anxious versus having an anxiety disorder. And right now, the terms often are inter interspersed or uh, interplayed. And they can mean very, very different things. And what is required in the accommodations regarding the differences between you know, low mood and emotion versus true um, diagnosable crisis and, and a kind of chronic illness, I think we've got to be able to become more conversant so that one, we don't unnecessarily invalidate the human beings that have diagnosable conditions by trying to cheapen or lessen or uh, sort of diffuse to say, oh, I, everybody feels depressed or everybody feels anxious. You know, you're, this is, you know, this is, yes, you know, it's, it's, you know, sort of get on with it. We all feel something. And I think therein lies this, this um, 
critical uh, leadership skill, which is in the space of validating communication. Validation is a therapeutic term. Um, it's one that is um, sometimes interspersed with validation equals agreement. And it's it's not that. In, in a therapeutic context, uh, validation is synonymous with psychological safety. It's a capacity not only to be empathetic, like feel empathy, it's to do empathy. And so validation is when you are faced with somebody who is in a state of uh, you know, a negative or emotion or in a, in a prolonged sense of pain or suffering, and it's a capacity to hold space to see them. It's an ability to acknowledge that what they're experiencing feeling is real. It's having the ability to use language of emotion. Uh, Brene Brown uh, in the Atlas of the Heart um, basically gives us the full glossary of every emotion term that as leaders, we would do well to have our arms around. You know, we, we often un, unwittingly um, make exchanges for things uh, when we're communicating with people. So language matters, understanding capacities. But when you can see someone in their pain and resist the temptation to diffuse it or try to positively talk them out of it or pretend like it's not happening or make it all about yourself. I mean, there's a lot of kind of general human reaction and response. That's how we behave when we're faced with people who are in struggle. And the great news is it's teachable. It's something that we can build capacities for. Again, uh, mentioning Jen, she recently released her book, Showing Up. And it is possible to teach the leadership skill of care and comfort, how to be caring and comforting and creating a culture that embraces that, not as a cozy soft skill, but as an actual capacity building skill. So whether a person is feeling depressed or is diagnosed with depression, you're building a culture that creates capacities for that as a, as a manager, as a leader, as a, as a friend, as a coworker. So I think, again, psychological safety would be the starting point, but I think we've got to think of this as building meaningful muscle in doing empathy, not just being empathetic. Right. Well, and there's a couple of, I mean, there's a lot that you just said that I would love to, to dive a little further into. I mean, what, one of the things, um, I mean, and I, I've heard it described this way is unwittingly sort of dismissing somebody else or, or having the fact that, you know, because the way I experience something is just intuitive with a lot of people with, well, you must have experienced it the same way. And, and there's a lot of people in professional services, maybe in leadership roles who, uh, unless there was, you know, physical, you know, trauma as far as the hurt and being hurt with the, with the, with, with, with loss, um, sickness as part of the pandemic, the economic uncertainty. So some of that didn't, didn't work. Right. So there are some people who think of it, well, it's actually kind of a blessing. You know, some things slowed down. We got to spend more time mm -hmm. at home. We learned to play games again. I mean, so, wow, you know, yeah, there was some loss, but it was actually a good thing. It was a blessing and which can be major triggers for a lot of people. And so there's just so many, I guess, the awareness of, we might've all been in the same storm, but we were certainly in very different boats and some of them capsized and some of them took water in and some of them, you know, had smooth sailing. And, and so just from a leader being aware, everyone has a different experience, but, and so there is this self-awareness and emotional intelligence, yeah. which is a, a gap um, and yeah. certainly an emerging idea amongst a lot of people. Um, and so I guess it has to flow from that self-awareness and emotional and caring for others. 
I mean, what, what's your thought on the level of self-awareness and emotional intelligence you see in general firm leadership? And, and then I want to tie that into the idea or the concept of this is work. Why do we have to deal with this stuff? The work is work. Life is life. We're here to serve our clients. This seems like a bunch of hooey. It it comes from the, so what's your thought on that and how to approach it? Well, I want to go back to the boats because I think what you said is so important uh, that while the conditions of the storm were collective, the relative impact and the nature of how you responded, your, your vessel in the space of the storm, totally different. And I think again, when we, when we look at awareness, just starting there to say, my experience was just that it was my experience and holding space to be curious, to understand that everyone did have their own unique experience and the desire to be validated and that that experience was indeed your true experience is very powerful versus saying the only way to have a safe experience in your response to the pandemic is to be in that space of with such a blessing and family time. I mean, for some people, that was actually their experience, and we shouldn't diminish that or or, or degrade that or, or demonize the fact that some people did have positive affect, and we have to recognize that that really isn't the norms, that if you look at the, again, the data would suggest that for some particularly affluent individuals with lots of autonomy and resourcing and support and space, there were many positives. I would also go so far as to generalize many of the affluent, privileged, resourced, big space, options to travel, options to do things, that that also can be highly correlated with your most highly paid people inside of an organization or a firm. And so even in that sense, I think we have to recognize as leaders, if you are in a space where you're incredibly well-resourced or you have privilege, that it doesn't mean you didn't have a great experience. It doesn't mean that there were positives, but if you rest in that being the space that the, the larger masses experienced, that's where your blind, blind spot number one is gonna be. So creating a, an awareness around that, that people did have very different experiences. I think secondly, is that we've got to understand that it's not just the individuals we work with who've had an experience, it's their, in, it's their interdependence with their plus ones. I think for many professional services firms, and in fact, our shared friend, Hannah Williams, who has a great podcast that describes the world as native analog, for which you and I are, mm-hmm. versus native digital. If you think about the, the mental health crisis further um, exasperated by COVID uh, for children between ages 10 and 25, so that's effectively the Gen Z, native digitals the degree to which they experienced trauma and stress, they are anywhere from three to four times more likely to uh, respond in self-harm and suicide. Uh, There's been a 400% increase in diagnosable, not just feel anxious, feel depression, but depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, other mental health disorders diagnosable that that community, if you think about everyone that works at your firm, maybe they themselves are coping and navigating and came from an era where the pick up, you pick yourself up by your bootstraps may still be true. And I know as a native analog, that's kind of true for me. Like you just figure it out. 
But we have to understand almost everyone in your firm is connected plus one to a loved one or a child or a niece or a nephew or an important friend in community that's between the ages of 10 and 25. So if we do the math, we have to recognize that trauma isn't just the thing we individually experience, it's the ecosystem. And in many cases, you've got people as leaders that are working in your firm that they themselves are experiencing trauma because of the loved one that is in trauma and they don't know what to do. And they don't know how to be in suffering with this plus one between ages 10 and 25. So again, I think awareness has to go beyond that. There's multiple boats that had multiple experiences in the storm. I think there's an understanding that you have individuals who have had experience and need accommodation. And those individuals have a plus one relationship. And when we apply then an empathy into action, this isn't just about the flexibilities of those transactional things, which are valued. It's not, this is not a time to cut back on benefits. But I think we have to think more holistically to say, these are human beings that are professional services practitioners. And if they aren't working, we're not making revenue. We have to learn a different way to respond in order to continue to have the lifeblood of our business models to sustain. So we've got to build a different type of communication, a different type of uh, feedback systems, uh, a different kind of uh, social connectedness, uh, building trust and relationships, finding uh, what Dan Pink de describes in his book, Drive. You know, How do we engineer work that has more autonomy, more mastery, more purpose? Uh, creating purpose-driven culture has never been more important to feel a sense of belonging. So I think there's a lot that leaders can be doing that goes beyond just the passive pat on the head and say, oh, I'm so sorry you had it so difficult. Meanwhile, for me, it was amazing because we, you know, we did the pandemic in, you know, in Florida um, and had a, you know, had a wonderful experience. So I just, again, I think we have to be really, really sensitized to our truth is just that it's our truth our experience. I, I do want to talk about how to communicate differently and in ways to, to not only get to empathy, but move even beyond empathy and into action, right? That, that So it, it's very helpful and, and how we would do that culturally. What do you say to firms, um, leaders and leadership teams, and maybe more awareness and urgency is the answer, but who are still struggling with the, this is work I don't want to deal with this. I, I again, I, I don't. I want to just punch the point here because it's not only the one degree of separation or the direct relationship. It's also the generation that's in our organizations now yeah. that that are being affected, right? So yeah. it's not it's not just kids, which you know, and and it, it, we such a bring our whole selves to work. I mean, what is affecting us? Affect what offends us? Affects yeah. us in terms of our mental health and wellness? Affects us physically? It's all connected. What affects our families and friends affects us. I mean, it's, it's all connected. But what, I guess, what do you, What's the what would you message? say to firms yeah. to say, okay, you're still struggling with wh whether you should even take this on. What do you, what do you say to sort of say, okay, make a decision. Here's what you need yeah. to consider, or here's what your fate might be. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, um, I'll use the, the, um, I'll use the weather analogy again. Um, or a wildfire analogy. So there is a certain human control, need for control, that notwithstanding facts, data, science, that our own human sense of things 
likes to do things the way we like to do things. And so it's kindred to, you see that the tsunami is coming. You're being told to go to higher ground and people think I'm smarter than the radar. I'm going to stay in my home or a wildfire is coming. You need to evacuate. And people with garden hoses say, my house is going to be okay. I'm not leaving. I'm not evacuating. That same phenomenon is what is occurring right now in leadership within their organizational cultures. And so what I will say is to leaders, one, work is work. And when your work is interdependent on anything other than computation and automation, you have to deal with this. And you run the risk as a leader of turning a blind eye so long that the garden hose will not put out the fire and the tsunami and the flooding, you can't escape the water. I would say at its most basic sense, be like, we need to get over it. We need to accept that this is happening. This is work. This is life. And if we the, the longer we push it off and the longer we invalidate the higher probability, the stability of our business model, our future, our profit-making, our retirements, our legacy, all of that's at risk. So I would say to a leader, what would you do if you knew a tsunami was going to hit your office? Would you say, everybody, you know, hunker down and, you know, here's a life jacket, make sure you can swim? No, you would, the responsible thing you would do would go to higher ground and then deal with the consequences that occur. If you're, if your office and if your office doesn't hit, get flooded, then you rejoice and then you help others who've been flooded. I mean, it's, 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 it's that simple, I think, but I don't know that as leaders, we're looking at this or any other type of disruptor through that lens. And well, thank you for sharing that. And that makes total sense. And I agree 100% with it. And it's a matter of maybe get, getting out of our busy and consumed and worried about some of the, the things that we're used to worrying about and really see the much bigger picture that's happening here. And so I think that's critical. Before we dive into you know, some of the how should we should work culturally, what, what for a, a firm, an organization that, okay, there's a board meeting, there's an executive team, we need to do something about this. We, we, what what would you suggest are some of the first steps that the leadership team should start moving towards yeah. or, or taking on? Well, I, I, again, I think, uh, so having some sense of a, a sobriety check on this, um, I think there are a number of uh, tools that can be made available to give, you know, kind of an organizational culture acid test pulse check. Um, I know that uh, Inspiring Comfort has an assessment that can give leaders the data on what's the current state of the kind of the health and well-being and how equipped do your people feel in caring for others um, in, in the space of, of a, a shadow pandemic or a tsunami. So I think when you get data, it starts to make it real. And so for me, I think leaders would do well. And whether you do that through a formal assessment or you do that through you know, a walk around assessment, I think you've got to add this question to the mix and create space to get really clear answers. And so asking questions that are, are, are non-biased or non-judgmental so that you can understand current state, I think is critically important. I think number two 
is to acknowledge that if you if we can remove the hierarchy for a hot minute, and whether you're a billable or a non-billable professional, um, you know, kind of where you fit in the hierarchy, I think we have to break this down into uh, a focus on human experience and really understand the psychosocial dynamics that are a part of the human experience. And when we can and when we can understand uh, how much more we have in common across the board when we when we examine or understand uh, what it means to be fully human, then leaders can become far more conversant around what are the conditions required for human flourishing. And there's again, great bodies of resources and research and information and great um, facilitators and consultants like yourself that can help leaders get their arms around what are, what is true for a psychologically safe workplace? What are the standards or conditions? Um, what are the attributes? You know, how, how do we how do we build that sense of awareness? And then I think thirdly, this is really about muscle and training and coaching. And you know, training and coaching has become more widely accepted across lots of continuums. I mean, I think about the work that that um, I've had the privilege of doing. You know, I get to be a business development coach. And, you know, for a grand while in professional services, particularly in law, when you got a coach, that meant you were broken. Now, coaching has sort of moved into the zone, like we think of elite athlete coaching. It's like, you don't have a coach. Every, you know, every elite athlete or leader has a coach or is in, in a, a scenario where they submit themselves to training and coaching and executive development and executive MBA. In effect, that is going to be what's required. But again, instead of attaching it to business development coaching to get more sales, I think it is really about human experience coaching um, to know how to show show and be a person who knows how to engage with care and comfort and connection and building the skill and what do we say? How do we respond? What's the proper way to check in? Uh, what are the actual things that provide comfort that are sources of healing? How do you build longevity so that it's not a one and done? Um, I think there's a there's a, a great body of research that can give you a very clear prescribed rubric that if you learn to embody it, build fitness in it, it absolutely becomes a skill that then leads to more revenue, more profitability, more talent retention, more attraction, et cetera. So to me, leaders first have got to get sober. Secondly, I think that sobriety will come through data. I think that we need to understand, um, start at the condition of, what is required? What are the foundations required for human flourishing? And then how do we design and build muscle, not only just to have the awareness of the attributes, but to be effective in cultivating the attributes of human flourishing? I agree with what you, thank you for sharing that. I agree. And I see it in practice. I mean, so much more today, leadership is about truly being a leader and doing leadership things and not managing the past or managing expectations. It's about really stepping in and, and, and doing the hard things that people expect out of a leader and people expect much more out of leadership than revenue and profit. And, and it, it is a major change. And, and if you're not coached on that, and it, it, even in the self-awareness and the blind spots and the emotional intelligence and being able to connect with people and move them um, in, a, in a way that is very authentic to who you are. I mean, it sounds a little hooey, but it is so factually true and it always has been. And now it's finally being talked about it, it, there's this survey fatigue, you know, I've told, I mean, it gets into the, you know, coming back into the office, yeah. another survey. And I don't want, I've told you this before. Can't you just figure this thing out? There's a, every, you know, and so 
can, with everything that we've spoken about, can we just assume everyone is dealing with some type of acute or chronic high-grade, low-grade trauma or post-traumatic yes. stress and just act differently? Like, that's it. I don't need the survey. I am going to make a probably a very valid assumption. Everyone is dealing with something and it's very different. And I'm only going to benefit from acting in a certain way and starting my meetings and starting my actions and creating a culture of X. If we just make that assumption right now to not waste time because time is of the essence and there's a major cost to inaction to those people that are in our care that we're supposed to be shepherding and everyone around them. So can we, if we just make that assumption, well, how would we start acting differently? organizationally. Yeah. Also, so I'm going to, I'm going to respond in two ways to what you just said. So first of all, let's just play this out from a design thesis. If you operated on the assumption that you have an entire community, that no one is immune and you, and you operated and believed for that, um, even if it, even if that actually weren't true, any action you're going to take is only going to be additive to further amplify the goodness, right? So even if we don't have, so they think there's no downside to the assertion is if you build a culture for which the design input makes the assumption that everybody's got us something, then it does allow you to say, so we're all going to make, it's all going to be safe. It's just a question of like, how many somethings are you dealing with? But let's assume that we're all at a, at a level playing field, that there's all some way that we're being affected. Then I really do think it begins with, and you, and you even talked about some of the real practicalities. Um, I think it's going to come down into, uh, well, kind of at a, at a, organizational level with regards to how um, how we validate or make visible um, safe safe conversation or safe discussion. So as an example, uh, one of my uh, best clients um, early in COVID, when it was clear that this was going to be prolonged, um, the managing partner of this firm used his voice in an all hands type of communication and referenced his own personal struggle with depression and his own personal struggle uh, with alcohol addiction. And in a moment, essentially outed himself as a person who was personally experiencing and dealing with these things pre-pandemic in a way to say, it's okay not to be okay. And so I think to the extent that that leaders can go first. And it's not to suggest that you have to out yourself in that capacity, but I can't tell you the, the profound impact that this has had on this firm. And if you look at retention data, if you look at how they're moving in the space on a comparative basis to other firms, it's an entirely different ecosystem of uh, care, largely because the leader was willing to go first. So I think that there's that there's that that layer of highest level, it's okay not to be okay kind of communication that is important. I think secondarily, when we get to that the kind of that team level or department level, um, how we uh, kick off meetings, um, how we do uh, team check-ins, um, how we make space for things like high-low, you know, what's the high going on right now and what's the low, even adding an emotional element to bring people into the room before you dive into the status and reporting of an agenda. Small shifts in meeting facilitation and meeting management can further personify and give you clues and flags for what people are navigating or dealing with. 
Um, I can tell you of a recent client scenario where they did a high love check-in. Um, you know, so they're able to talk about like, here's the great stuff going on with our clients or whatever. And then the low, um, it was clear that there were a couple of people who were navigating elder care issues uh, with parents that had been diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's early onset. Because of that low, the permission for the low, there was an immediate then ability, not only for two people within the same group to say, wow, we're both experiencing this and we're both upended. So the isolation broken immediately notwithstanding all the resourcing then that could then be made available to them. And it turns out that their particular firm actually has an elder care employee benefit. So um, a set of resources in concierge that are specifically designed to help employees navigate the caring of an aging loved one. So the activation and awareness of that employee benefit became immediate because of a high-low check-in. So I think there are some practicalities, again, that can be designed and trained into meetings. But really where the impact lies is at that one-to-one. It's how I show up as a leader with my people and how I train my managers or frontline supervisors to be with their people and how we do things like performance check-ins. You know, how do we observe when we see something's off instead of pretending like, oh, it's going to get better. It's like stepping into the awkward zone, having the courage to, to really see someone and ask a question. You know, how is today? How are you? It's when people experience crisis, how we welcome them back into the workplace, you know, left without training. Most people are going to respond in a way that they'll either avoid them, um, they'll deflect them, or they won't bring up the grief or trauma. And all that does is further exasperate the isolation and depression. So how do you talk about someone who's grieving? What do you say? So there's actual training on the actual words to say to someone who's lost a loved one, who are suffering, you know, an infertility crisis, a divorce, an aging parent, there's language. And if we can just get more conversant in the same way that we give people critical feedback, I mean, think about performance management training, you know, the good old sandwich method, give them a positive, tell them a constructive needs improvement, finish on a positive. I mean, it's not that that's the best method for giving feedback, but I'm suggesting that how to show up for people, how to demonstrate care and comfort. These are teachable skills, just like the teachable skill of giving an excellent performance review or being a great performance coach. Can, can you share just one example? I know it's, it's, it's teachable, but could you share one example of a, a situation where in a, in, a, in a high low, someone discloses something and someone says, oh, well, I'm going to avoid him today or, you know, versus like that might be the natural reaction, but with more coaching, like, you know what, you would approach them. What would you say to that situation? Well, first of all, you would say something like that really sucks. This sounds so hard. I can't imagine how hard this must be for you. This is unfathomable what you're having to deal with, man. My heart is so with you. I am so sad to hear that you're experiencing that. Any one of the phrases that I just quickly uttered off, any one of them, bridges, safety. If you just tell me, um, if, I, if, I, if someone comes to you and says, I, you know, I'm, I just had a miscarriage. And if your first response is, oh, well, no problem. You know, my wife had a miscarriage too, or I, I've had a miscarriage as well. That's usually what people do to try to empathize, but that's not helpful. If somebody has just told you sad news or that they're struggling or that there's something going on, your first response is to say, that's awful. 
that must really be hard. Or man, I can see how much, how, how much you're struggling. That's basic. And if you can imagine that multiple times over and over and over again, as your first response, that creates a multitude of safety for the person then to say, okay, you're with me. You see me. Right. I didn't and, say, and keep, yeah, I keep, keep it on them and, and just let them know that it's you're, you're with them and you want you're you're feeling for them. Yeah. And, and, and you're doing, the, and you're doing now making it about me and saying, well, I dealt with that too. Or, you know, Hey, you know, yeah, it's just a little bit of time and you'll be fine. Like all of yeah. those, some somewhat awesome. natural or, or insecure reactions that a lot of us have are, are no goes. Yeah. So you eradicate those things. And then the second thing is then you take an action, you do a thing. Um, I know for, for me, having had some experience where I've, you know, had, we've had some struggle and, and it's really needed people to just help me restore and create some safety. One of the things that often we, we think to do is just tell me what you need. You know, what, what can I do for you? Well, a lot of times when we ask people, what can I do for you? What do you need? What we're basically saying is I'm so uncomfortable with your discomfort that I need you to give me a job to do so that I can feel like I'm doing something to be helpful, to relieve my own distress versus training people on here's a recipe, a roadmap of what you offer to do for somebody who's in a space of need so that you don't put the onus on them to give you a job to do or to make you feel more comfortable. So again, a lot of this is just creating alternates to our natural reactions and it's helping us navigate our distress when, uh, about other people's distress. And so these are, again, these are things that are very teachable. And critical for culture and connection and all of the benefits of our human interaction that goes back to our ability to, to do work. How I, I just want to go back to some of the hurdles that, that and, and the hesitation that I hear often is, I, and I think it's, there's a little bit of, a, I've never had to do this and there's some fear and I don't know what to do, which, you know, I know we, there's some resources we can link to in the show notes about, you know, what you've been talking about with some of the training and, and Jen Mars work. But if it's like a truly like, I don't want to go there because there's legal implications and I don't want to know any more than I have to, because then I have to, I have to report that to HR and this. And so people hesitate and it might be out of ignorance. It might be real in their mind. I mean, how do you navigate the, I don't want to know personal stuff, even though it's pretty critical to the health and welfare and, um, um, success of the organization. How, how do you deal with that? So I think it is, first of all, it comes back to this understanding of there's a wildfire coming up the mountain. You know, there's a, there's a major storm brewing out in the ocean. And so while I absolutely can appreciate why you wouldn't want to understand employee personal information, the reality is we have whole people who are working in our whole organization and we don't get the luxury in this current moment and in this current response when you have this kind of talent um, dysregularities and, and uncertainties, we don't have the luxury to, to separate. We have to create cultures that allow people to be whole people, bring their whole self to work, which means then from a human resources or from a staffing perspective, we gotta get comfortable being uncomfortable. People are messy. Human life is messy. But if we can create cultures that allow that mess to be restored and brought back to wholeness, and we do it in the context of work, my guess is we might be creating the kind of loyalty and longevity that will allow us to outbehave our competition 
and to do really impactful things in the markets that we serve and for the clients that we work with. Right. So not not only like allowing our frustrations to come out at work, but actually having work be not only attraction, retention, and, and engagement, but but really a catalyst to really be whole selves. Hi, I know we're running at the end of our time, and there's so much more to talk about. But before, you know, or, or as we close, I mean, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think is important? As we, this is an initial conversation, probably. But what 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 haven't we talked about that you think is important to share with with well, leaders and managers? Well, I want to make sure that that I. I lead with this understanding that this whole conversation is not about should and shame. You know, you should be doing this. You should be that when we should all over ourselves. And I want, you know, I said, should when we're shoulding, um, it's really, it's rooted in shame. I would absolutely extend grace to anybody who's listening. The best possible thing you can do is get curious, find ways to become more aware of what's occurring around you and find ways to bridge the acceptance that this is occurring, this is going to impact your organization. And right now today, you have the most variables within your control and how you choose to respond. And so I just want to give leaders a lot of encouragement and recognize that curiosity and and becoming conversant and aware is the first step. Thank you. Thank, thank you for that. Thank you for all that you're doing um, personally. Thank you for being you and, 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 under, and, and, and just being the person that I know you are and show up to be. And thanks for sharing on the podcast. How can listeners get in touch with you to learn more about you, what you're doing, and um, any resources that you have to offer in, in terms of workplace health and safety and productivity? Well, first of all, I just thank you, Pete, for giving me this opportunity. This is such an important conversation. So I just want to echo back, ditto to you. Thank you for being you, for prioritizing and shining a spotlight on this. If folks want to get in touch with me, um, our my website is uh, growthplay.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and my email address is dnup at growthplay.com. That's probably the easiest way uh, to take a first step to get connected and know that I will share any resources that I have with anyone who wants to go deeper and wants to get connected to the community of people who are doing life-saving and life-changing work in this arena. Great. And I will have links to all of that in the show notes, as well as some other you know, resources that you shared with me. Um, Deb, thank you very much. I, I look forward to connecting with you again and hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, Pete. All the best. Take care. You too. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others both inside and beyond our organizations. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.